Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have got another episode of the podcast for you guys, um, but it's going to be a little different than what I had planned on. I had originally planned on doing an episode, today's episode, actually, to be about the concept of human sacrifice in history and in gaming, um, and I thought that I had sort of more that I wanted to say on the subject, but when I started recording, I kind of realized that I, I felt like I didn't necessarily have as much that I felt like I needed to present on, on the subject. There's still a couple of things that I think are worth talking about on that subject, but I, I really sort of felt like um, a lot of the kind of things that I had been considering had been sort of covered and are kind of more generally covered by a sort of sense of, um, I hate to say like moral relativism, but a, a sort of cultural awareness that extends to historical cultures is one way to put it. I think that, um, Essentially, I think that a lot of what I had to say basically comes down to, you know, understand that people living in these historical cultures that may have practiced uh, more regular and more significant human sacrifice, um, you know, the, the people living in those cultures lived in cultures where that was uh, had a different meaning to them. And that doesn't necessarily make it acceptable to especially uh, unwilling human sacrifice, right? And when you talk about like, you know, battle captives or people like that who are sacrificed, but that basically I think there's a, a point to be made about um, the, the kind of way in which a number of those cultures, you know, the, the point being that people, you know, who lived in those cultures believed in the value of, of what they were doing, right? That sacrifice has a sort of transactional element and that, that um, you know, people who were practicing human sacrifice generally, um, essentially, you know, believed in that transaction on some level is basically the point that I am uh, getting at. And, and that therefore, it's a little different than kind of just, you know, oh, those, you know, barbarians or those, those, you know, backwards ancients or things like that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's sort of what I, what a lot of what I had to say came down to, honestly. Um, so I feel like it's all right to just summarize it like that. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about something um, related to that, which is to say that the discussion about human sacrifice largely came out of discussion around the AD&D first edition Druid. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that are worth talking about with regard to sort of the nature of D, D over the years and its kind of connection to historical sources. Um, so I, I basically think that I'm going to probably talk a little bit about that in this episode. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and then I've got a couple of Collins to respond to. And then, yeah, that's going to be the whole episode. So I'm going to start with Collins and then chat for a little while about some other stuff. So stay tuned for that. Hey Arlen, listen to episode 3.21. As far as the workflow, you know, the word that popped to my mind when you try and describe the 
the second or third pass was polished, but I don't know that polish works as far as workflow goes compared to the idea of being, you know, the, the rawler original recordings. So I'll let you keep working on the way to describe that. I tend to record over and over. I do it on my phone, but I'll record, listen to it, erase it, record it, listen to it again, erase it. So I go through that process myself. You, you know, usually once I've hit recorded, I might edit a little bit, but you hear, you get what you get. But I usually, it's usually the third or fourth time it's come out of my mouth because I'm an external processor. So it helps me to actually say it before, you know, to cement it in my head. Yeah. And that's, that's essentially what I'm talking about. Um, that's Jason uh, Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast calling in about a recent episode um, where I sort of talked about my workflow. And in particular, one of the things I talked about was the idea of being able to um, re-record sections of the podcast um, as I have kind of built up enough buffer to, to do that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, that sort of um, polish is a good way to think about it. Um, I think there's also an element of kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's sort of like sometimes I feel like as I kind of work through a, a problem or an idea, it's almost like kind of each iteration goes a little further along the path, if that makes sense, that kind of the the first kind of time that I think through a problem, I sort of get a little ways and then get kind of distracted and off of the original idea. And then when I kind of go back to the start and go through, it's almost like that kind of, you know, first section has already been, you know, like, like with a path that almost been cleared out and then, you know, can go a little further and a little further and a little further to kind of carry ideas to their completion a little more thoroughly. Um, I think that's something that happens a lot when you talk about a lot of, um, iterative uh, work processes, right? This, this idea of kind of um, going a little further each time um, is, a, is a part of it. And I don't know that that's, because it doesn't seem like that's polished because you, you're sort of getting different content, but at the same time you are sort of retreading ground also. And so the, the early stuff ends up sort of polished, but you also are sort of adding material to the whole thing as you do that, I guess is kind of the idea. But anyway, yeah, so I, I really appreciated hearing that from you um, because it uh, what you're describing is very similar to what I'm interested in is, is kind of, you know, recording one version and then listening back to it and, and recording it again to see if I can kind of do better the next time. Um, and that's a, a whole thing. So anyway, that's that's sort of what I'm talking about. And it basically, um, as I said in the, the previous episode where I, where I was talking about this, a lot of it comes down to um, historically, I have not generally been very far ahead of um, publishing when I record things that generally what I've done is, you know, recorded a podcast episode basically and, and you know, hit publish as soon as Anchor is finished processing it, essentially. Um, and that as I am kind of developing this, these habits of, of sort of staying ahead of the production schedule, for lack of a better term, that that sort of allows for a little more kind of tweaking and tinkering um, over the course of an episode's kind of pre-publishing lifespan, essentially. 
and and that I think is I think it's done I think it's worked pretty well so far. Um, it hasn't been perfect. I think one of the things, and I've talked about this um, also, is that you don't necessarily have as much ability to respond to um, comments or questions or concerns if you are not necessarily going to do as much serious audio editing as um, you might. And that therefore there's, it's a, it becomes a little more rigid, but simultaneously a little more kind of polished and developed. And I guess it's sort of a trade off. So I don't know, as we'll see. As far as buying too much and overspending and, you know, I am with you on that. I do the same thing. So you just have to, I, you know, I know people that have a hobby budget and they stick to that budget no matter what. And if they, you know, if it's five cents over that budget, they can't afford it that month, period. And that's the way to go. I don't tend, I don't tend to have the um, willpower to do that. But if you can do that, that's definitely the way to go. Yeah, I feel like I should do something like that. Part of the, I guess the problem essentially is that my budget tends to be fairly flexible, which is to say that I could, you know, spend less money on RPGs, but spend that money on any number of other things. And I'm talking both about kind of like hobby stuff, but also even like, you know, I um, sometimes uh, have historically been dependent on ordering food that um, for for a time, especially during the pandemic, when I was having um, kind of kind of back in like uh, the fall of 2021, when I was having um, serious kind of mental health issues, that um, that was a way that I basically kind of a coping mechanism for depression that I would order food because I would realize that, you know, I don't have the kind of energy or, or willpower or whatever to cook something for myself. But I also know that I will just feel worse if I don't eat anything. So a solution to that is to, you know, order food on DoorDash basically and get it delivered. Um, and that just costs money. Um, but of course, the thing is that, you know, there's only so much money to go around for all the different things. And I really need to do a better job of, of you know, adding money to the savings account in addition to um, spending within the budget. Um, so I don't know. It's a whole thing. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get everything because I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a part of me that feels like when I have done a better job at sort of certain limitations that I end up just sort of, you know, spending the money on other things, essentially, right, that I, I will, you know, do a good job of keeping my gaming spending down, but then I will, you know, buy two or three more books on Amazon. And those could be um, within the same kind of hobby budget in general. But then I will also, you know, order food two or three times a week instead of once or things like that. And I don't know, it's just a, a complicated thing. I think really, it just comes down to I need to be um, more deliberate about my budget in the way that I have been for a lot of the other parts of my life and that I've been responding really well to, right? In the same way that I have, uh, I feel like I've really benefited from like, you know, taking uh, medicine and vitamins at like the same time every morning and 
just, you know, making it happen every morning um, or, you know, working out every day or things like that, that all of that has has been a real strong benefit to me. And then in the same way, I just need to, you know, kind of sit down and do some math and build a spreadsheet and kind of figure out what I can afford and what I'm interested in and all of that and just kind of, you know, set a, set a plan and practice some discipline and stick to it essentially. But I don't know. I don't want to because that's work. So we'll see. I will, I will have to psych myself up for that, I suppose. So Arlen, I will not try to encourage you to move things from YouTube, especially solo play over to a new podcast because I know it's a lot of work for you. And while I could guarantee you want to listen if you did that, the truth is I could download it from YouTube and listen to it as well. So there's not really a need to do that extra work for my case. If you have a bunch of other people that want it, that might be different, but don't do it on my account, even though that would be convenient. I have not had a chance to really delve into your online, your new newer online solo plays i hope to eventually but life's just been crazy but i you know eventually i will get around to it i'll take a long trip and download them all and binge them all at once or something well you're in luck jason because i have um started the pelham's wasteland plays solo podcast um i mentioned it in the last episode that went up on Sunday. There was a sort of announcement episode for two things, um, but one of them was the Pelham's Wasteland Play Solo podcast. Um, I'm not removing anything from the YouTube channel, which is to say that the idea is to duplicate the content on the YouTube channel and on that podcast, and then everything solo, excuse me, solo play that is on this podcast currently will be moved over to there. So the, I think that's mostly the Sagraham stuff and the um, icons stuff that I did some time ago. Um, so I'm going to basically put those uh, over onto that podcast um, instead of leaving them here, partly because they're hard to find here because they're sort of mixed in with everything. And they also don't really kind of fit the, the, the style of this particular podcast. So that's the idea. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been really enjoying the solo play stuff. It's been a whole lot of fun. Um, in particular, I've been, I found myself thinking a lot about kind of different, um, like mechanical bits, mechanical tweaks that I can make. Um, and part of what I like is that, you know, it gets into, um, there was a, a discussion that I, I don't remember if it was a podcast or a YouTube video. It might've been one of Runehammer's YouTube videos where he, talked about his OSE campaign. Um, I think that might have been it. But one of the things that if if so, one of the things that he was talking about had to do with the idea of the difference between um, sort of published content that is designed for every table potentially and sort of personal content that's designed for your table. And one of, one of the things that he was getting at had to do, especially with things like design balance and stuff like that, that um, one of the advantages of doing kind of homebrew stuff is that you make it presumably for 
your table um, and that you don't necessarily need to concern yourself, you know, and, and that gets into this sort of idea of, you know, what's, what's in the game is what we're concerned with. Uh, that is, I think, a part of a number of different game styles. Um, but that, you know, if you have, you know, like, for instance, if you're playing a game where there are, you know, 10 or 12 different classes and you have four players who are each single class characters, you don't necessarily, the, the point was sort of, you don't necessarily need to worry about classes that don't appear in your game, depending on the style of game. Now, some of those games, you know, you talk about like D&D &D 3 and 3.5 and Pathfinder, a lot of those PC classes are also used for NPCs or sometimes even for kind of elite like boss monsters that sometimes have some of those abilities too. Um, or that you could stat out with some of those abilities if you wanted to, I guess, is the a way, another way to put it. Um, but for instance, for 5e, um, NPCs don't really have player classes at all. The, the, the PC classes are basically exclusive to PC characters. And if you want an NPC, you build a much more like a monster generally, which works a little differently than a PC. Um, although you could, I mean, you could use some of the PC class stuff to build uh, a powerful NPC if you wanted to, but I, I guess I don't see why you would essentially. Um, and it, so it depends on the game, but the idea being that for instance, like let's say you have four classes in your party, you don't necessarily need to worry about how like, you know, this kind of homebrew element sort of infringes upon a class that isn't being played. Um, if you are not necessarily intending on kind of having that class as part of the campaign in the future. Right. And I think that was a, that was a real sort of eye opener to me because I had um, always thought about design. Uh, I'd often thought about design up until that point as having to do with like, you know, um, the designer creates, you know, like a list of options and the player picks one of those, if that makes sense. But that Runehammer, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was one of his episodes where he was talking about his OSE campaign. One of the things he was talking about was that he basically just asked his players, you know, what, what would be cool? What would you be really excited about being able to do as a character? And I thought that was really interesting because it's a totally different um, sort of philosophy than I had sometimes encountered, um, especially when you're talking about kind of the amateur side of design that does not necessarily need to preserve balance between everything that exists in the game, but kind of only needs to preserve balance between the things that exist within the specific kind of game at the table, not the game as the rule book, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, right. That, you know, if you wanted if you're playing a 5e game and you were like, you know, one of your characters, one of your player characters was like, hey, I don't really use this particular skill at all. Can I, you know, switch over to this skill that isn't technically listed in my class, but I think it would be fun, right? Like if you had a fighter who I can't remember which skills fighters can get, but, you know, if they wanted to trade, you know, proficiency in something that they don't use for something, you know, like uh, history or arcana check, which I'm pretty sure are skills that they technically don't have access to proficiency from being a fighter. They could probably get it from like a background or a feat maybe, but that as my point is that, you know, if you're not concerned with that, you know, stepping on anybody else's toes in the game, you can just do that, right? It's not like the game is going to break because you gave 
a PC, let a PC switch a skill around or something like that is sort of my point. And one of the the things with that is it was solo play where you only have the one player, right? There's, there's one game master, one player, and it's the same person. It's really easy to build mechanical bits and pieces that, um, you're interested in exploring and tinkering with. And, you know, one of the things that gets me in group games often is the way the the kind of uh, communication of expectations and of rules and, and kind of rules, expectations and world expectations that are not necessarily always explicit. Um, so for instance, I remember in a game where the game master um, got, um, had kind of a, a strange sort of blow up based on a player trying to place a spell on a, a corner of a battle map, right? That they were in one square and they wanted to say, okay, this cone for this spell is going to start at this corner of my square. And the game master apparently really didn't like that and had this sort of um, blow up about it, but that... Um, it was one of those things that we just hadn't really talked about it in the game at all. And I think many of us players sort of expected that, oh, we're playing this sort of, you know, top-down tactical style a lot of the time. So it makes perfect sense to do that kind of, you know, spell placement like you would in in a third edition game. Um, and that the game master did not like that. And so we ended up sort of talking about it. Um, but... My point being that I think that for me kind of summarizes my discomfort sometimes with, you know, rapidly changing house rules or homebrew or whatever you want to call it, where the game master, it seems, is uh, sometimes willing to, you know, make rules decisions or things like that and perhaps not discuss them as much with the players or perhaps not kind of ask the players what they think, especially when some of those decisions can be relevant to the players' decisions. Um, that, you know, when you talk about, you know, well, we're going to play with, you know, this alternate system or like this alternate mini game that, you know, you can end up with the player feeling or I as the player sometimes feel like, well, but wait a second, I was expecting something else. And that's not necessarily to say that it's always bad. I just... Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's a, a sort of communication issue um, and, and that that can come up and that I, as a game master, try to be very cognizant of the possibility of those communication issues, right? That I really try to avoid having situations where I, you know, have not communicated, like, here's what the sort of play expectations are to the players i guess right here's here's what we're doing a little different from the rule book with the rules that sort of thing is something that i try to really be be consistently upfront about that's just one of those things um so anyway the, the point of all that being that one of the cool things about solo play is that you don't need to do any of that right it's all you so you can do you know whatever the hell you want which is to say i've been designing some really weird shit for some of my solo play stuff um the the america the multiverse solo play game i've been designing some kind of odd things in terms of like how magic works and stuff like that um and then i've also been working on 
a another kind of solo play idea and some uh, kind of odd mechanical changes to Fate Accelerated Edition. Um, and I'll probably talk about those ideas in a later episode, but basically it comes down to trying to create a sort of um, what I have, what I, the, the sort of working title right now is Combat Momentum. Um, another way to put it might be like a combo meter, like in a video game, um, which is to say that in a number of video games, there's some element that is attached to basically like keeping up a string of uh, a sort of combo, right? Of, you know, hitting the enemy without getting hit yourself, that sort of stuff. And there would be you know, benefits from that or things like that. Um, in particular, in the Batman Arkham games, which I really, really love, um, one of the cool things is that as you develop your, as you, you level up Batman and buy upgrades for him and all that sort of stuff, um, one of the things that you often get in these games is um, basically kind of um, special actions that are triggered at particular combo um, multipliers, essentially. So, for instance, in, I don't know if all of them have it, but a lot of them have some version of, like, you know, when you hit an 8x combo, you get a, a special kind of automatic finisher move where basically you can, um, I don't, it's, it's a different button combination in different games. So basically you get to, instead of doing a regular strike or a counter, you can just do this special combo finisher and grab one guy and do a different animation to immediately take them out, which can be pretty useful if you're facing, you know, a group of a couple of thugs get, you know, build up your combo, especially later on in the game, because you can often upgrade that to, you know, go from you need an 8x to a 5x or things like that. Or um, you can also often add, there will be special like gadget abilities that fit in there too. So like in, um, I think it's an Arkham Knight where Batman has basically two versions of the, um, it's not the grappling hook, it's the back claw, technically, which is basically the same thing, except instead of being a grappling hook that zips him up, it's a, a claw that pulls somebody towards him. And so you can use it regularly in combat and grab a bad guy and pull him towards you, pull him off balance and pull him towards you and do a kind of zip line finisher on him. Or if you have built up enough combo and bought the right upgrades, you can do this thing where you grab them and pull them towards you and do this kind of acrobatic finisher move on them that works similar to the the, the other finisher stuff. And I, I think that's kind of a really cool concept because one of the things that happens is that then um, you, uh, you don't lose your combo, but you do have to kind of build back up that... Um, meter essentially to do those actions again so you can't just do the special finishers on bad guys you have to kind of and and so there's a real kind of tactical element of okay when do i use my special finisher because i'm going to need to get through a couple of actions without it um and and things like that so i basically i, I really like that element of those games and i've been thinking about well how could you do something like that with some with various games that i like and there are a couple of examples that i've been thinking of um in fact my um pathfinder 2 swashbuckler character kind of already does a little bit of that with his panache features and especially with some of his um 
as you develop that character, some of the panache features that you get, some of the, the swashbuckler feats that you get that influence the way you spend panache can do some really cool stuff on that front. Um, in particular, there's one that lets you regain panache when you used a finisher on an enemy and kill them. So it's really great for like, you know, weaker, low level enemies that you can kind of, you know, smash through because you get extra damage on a finisher. So you can, you know, get panache by doing something and then, you know, smack them around and use your finishers to just kind of, you know, finish her on a weak enemy, finish them with a bunch of damage and then get panache back by finishing them and then do the finisher again on the next enemy for the bonus damage too. Then that's, I think uh, a really, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, it's definitely has this kind of, you know, gamey quality of, you know, using, building your feats in the right way to be able to do specific things. But I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. So I've been tinkering with basically how to do things like that in different systems that I like. So, yeah, but, but the point of all of that is to say that one of the things that's great about that is that in solo play, I can just, you know, I don't have to worry about is this particular effect going to be like unbalanced with the party if I have, you know, three characters and two of them are doing things that kind of use these particular special rules and one of them isn't right is the one that isn't going to feel like significantly more capable or less capable or anything like that right i don't really have to worry about that with solo play if i'm just playing as one player character right so anyway that's a whole thing so yeah, that is uh, a real advantage of solo play stuff, in my opinion. Hey, Arlen, it's Jay. Just catching up on some old episodes, listening to your big call-in splash. Thanks very much uh, for that. It's a great episode. And um, towards the end, you were talking about Castles and Crusades, the various codici that have been published by Troll Lord Games. And I'm with you. I think they're great resources, even if you're not going to use the Castles and Crusades system. The... Um, those those resources are absolutely fabulous, and um, yeah, I can think of very many great ideas, including obviously playing games within each of those cultures. But also, you know, what about mixing it up? What about actually using those culture books to build your like different nations, as it were, in a fantasy world, and then have them kind of interact with the gods live and all of that? It would be great fun. Anyway, thanks very much for reminding me about those cool books. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're well, and I'll speak to you soon, man. Game on. Yeah, my buddy Che Webster calling in to talk about the uh, Troll Lord Codex culture books. And yeah, they are really cool. There's so much kind of good stuff in there, a ton of really great ideas um, and plenty of material that is, you know, system agnostic, that is just more about kind of a, a sort of um, layman um, overview, layman's overview of a particular kind of mythology or, or culture in a way that is uh, perhaps more accessible than some of the other things that are out there, especially some of the stuff that I have read about kind of comparative mythology and and um, understanding uh, different kind of historical mythologies and all that sort of stuff. And some of it gets really in the weeds at times, as I'm sure that um, you know, Che, and most of my listeners know. Um, but anyway, yeah, those books are really good. Um, I really like them. I, I'm not sure when I'm going to get a chance to do it, but I found a, um, 
a map on DriveThruRPG for the Twilight 2000 game, the new Twilight 2000 game that is based on the, the Baltic states, um, kind of northern Poland, but then into like Belarus and, and right, Lithuania is, is there and all those. Basically, the, the, the southern coast of the, the Baltic Sea um, in kind of Eastern Europe. And this was originally intended as sort of an expansion on the central Poland map that Twilight 2000 fourth edition already comes with, um, that when you buy the, the, the box set or get the PDF collection, you get a, a couple of large scale, uh, maps, hex maps to travel across as you make your way through this um, post-apocalyptic or semi-post-apocalyptic world. Um, and so somebody had sort of, I, I wonder if perhaps their campaign had gone that direction. And so they decided to go ahead and make a map of that kind of region of Eastern Europe to for themselves, and then just decided to kind of add it to the, the drive-through um, community content stuff so that you could get it yourself. Um, but I was really, I really thought that was interesting, partly because one of the pieces of history of that kind of region of the world has to do with what has been called the Northern Crusades, um, which is in medieval Europe, there were crusades against not just um, the, the kind of um, various uh, Muslim forces uh, on the kind of uh, eastern and southern coasts of the Mediterranean, right? The area around what's kind of modern day Lebanon and Israel and stuff like that. And then also Egypt sometimes. Um, and then of course there's the Reconquista in Spain. Um, but then there are also what's called the Northern Crusades. And then there's some other, you know, there's like the Albigensian Crusade and things like that. But the point being, I want to talk about the Northern Crusades, um, which I was first introduced to in one of the expansions for Medieval Two Total War. Um, you, it's the Teutonic campaign, and so you can play as there are a number of factions, but the sort of big two are the Teutonic Knights and Medieval Lithuania. And the idea being, Medieval Lithuania was um, non-Christian, still still pagan at the period, and the Teutonic Knights were out to kind of you know put them to the sword or the cross, basically, um, that sort of thing. And then there's some other, you know, there's the kingdom of Poland and then also the, um, various, you know, Kievian and, um, Novgorodian, um, forces in the sort of medieval, um, further East and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, it was a, it's an interesting, um, part of history, I think, that doesn't necessarily get talked about as much sometimes as the sort of, you know, the the big stars of like the first and the third crusades for Jerusalem and things like that, um, that those sort of get more historical attention, at least in my experience sometimes. Um, and, and anyway, so I basically, I, there was this map and I was like, oh, you could do something really cool with this. And in particular, I had this idea that you could create a sort of sandbox hex crawl game where the part of the idea is that it would be this sort of post-apocalyptic but post-apocalyptic in a particular way which is to say that somehow there wouldn't really be like many guns at all um that it would be sort of like a um another 
um, video game, which is to say that there's a um, there's a game that I really love, the Crusader Kings series by um, Paradox Interactive, which are um, map stairs where you play as a feudal lord and engage in feudal politics. Um, and the base games, so I've not played Crusader Kings 1, but I played a ton of Crusader Kings 2, and I've now played a ton of Crusader Kings 3. Um, in the base game, you are generally in... Um, kind of Europe or the Mediterranean basin, although Crusader Kings 2 expanded the map out and Crusader Kings 3 kept the expanded map. So it goes all the way to India. And then in Crusader Kings 3, you can get into kind of like modern day, um, I guess it's called, it's not called Burma anymore. It's called Myanmar, but kind of that area, maybe not all the way that far, but kind of past the Indian subcontinent and around into sort of Southeast Asia a little bit. And who knows, they may expand the map further as the game goes on. Um, I guess we'll see, because that's what happened with Crusader Kings 2, is that they kind of had expansions that sort of expanded the map out further and further and further, because um, it started mostly focused on kind of Western Europe and the Mediterranean basin, and then sort of added more and more um, as the over the course of the game's life cycle. But anyway, for Crusader Kings 2 in particular, there was a mod that I really liked called After the End, and it was set starting in the year 2666, but it was not in... Um, medieval so it was not medieval times it was post-apocalyptic and it was set in the americas specifically kind of um mostly north america and then the map included kind of central america and a little bit of the sort of northern sections of south america and the caribbean and stuff like that um, i don't think it went as far as the islands of hawaii and i don't think it went as far north as alaska but i could be wrong um but you basically had basically the modern day United States and most of Central America and the kind of southern section of Canada, which was where most of the people live anyway. So um, and it was this sort of strange, uh, like, you know, post-apocalyptic feudalism thing was the idea. And there were kind of clever ideas about the way that some of these kind of cultural elements from the old world had survived so for instance like one of the religions was the federalists and the federalists are a um this post-apocalyptic religion that is based on sort of incomplete information about the american founding fathers and their kind of lives and history and all of that sort of stuff and it's centered in kind of the the northeast um, but it has little kind of pockets around other places where in the real world there are military bases. The idea being that those places had kind of bits of um, federalist uh, uh, material that inspired similar beliefs um, because of their connection with the, the sort of government that was uh that eventually collapsed but lived out a little longer um which is kind of a cool concept so you can you know for instance i had one campaign where i played as a central texan federalist basically um who had apparently been converted by the the missionaries from one of the um the local uh military bases and then 
made it his mission to build a new Republic of Texas based on the spirit of the, the Americanist founders, um, which is a really fun campaign. And there's some other cool stuff too. Like for instance, um, there are a number of mercenary companies based off of sports teams, especially NFL teams. And the idea being that there are like jerseys that still, you know, there there's like a, you know, uh, a whole, you know, supply crates full of jerseys that were found. And so these mercenaries were like, hey, we'll just use these as our tabards and our symbols and stuff. And so there's like, if you take over the the county of, uh, uh, if you take over Harris County, um, which is where uh, Houston is located in Texas, you can create the mercenary company, the Houston Texans, and there'll be a, a sort of mercenary company that you can hire out to other people or you can employ yourself um, to fight in your battles and stuff, which is a cool concept, right? There's some cool stuff um, there. And um, yeah, it's a really, it's kind of a fun, weird thing because it's this, um, you know, post-apocalyptic feudalism. And so it, it uses all the kind of mechanical stuff from Crusader Kings um too and so it's all you know knights and 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 archers and there aren't any guns apparently and things like that but it also has this kind of you know it's a different sort of version of feudalism than what of course uh existed historically in western europe so it's a it's an interesting and then there's some there's a number of references like to the fallout video games and things like that there too and all of that um but anyway i thought about doing something kind of similar with this map and the troll lord codexes especially the codex germania and the codex nordica and the codex slavorum and that you could have this kind of uh post-apocalyptic feudalism culture class clash thing where you have the kind of western parts of the map are ruled by um you know counts and dukes and people like that in this kind of feudal structure who are a part of this um you know historical germanic mythological belief system and then on the eastern side you have the people who have the sort of historical more slavic um, beliefs. And then part of the idea is that somehow in the apocalyptic event, there's a sort of um, like mythology made real element, I guess, for lack of a better term, that there's some sort of like psychic disturbance where there are, you know, not necessarily like exactly as described in the mythology, but that somehow a little bit like the strange Che that we played, where the idea was that there are these kind of worlds that exist that are sort of an outgrowth of human storytelling. And so it would be a little like that where you have kind of, you know, in the sections controlled by the different kind of um, peoples with different belief systems, there are mythological elements that tie into those beliefs, right? So when you're in the Western part of the map, you have these kind of like Germanic mythological random encounter tables versus in the Eastern part of the map, you have uh, encounter tables based on, uh, like various forms of Slavic mythology, right? That's sort of the idea. Um, and I thought that would be kind of a really cool concept and to blend it with a number of other things in particular, some of the, um, kind of, uh, there's a couple of pieces of sort of sci-fi and then post-apocalyptic fiction that I was interested in kind of doing some things with, 
um, in particular, in particular, Metro 2033, which is a uh, book and a video game. The book is by a guy named Dmitry Bukovsky. And then the video game was developed by basically a bunch of the guys who had originally developed, worked for um, the studio that made the Stalker games. And then basically they said, well, we can make our own game and actually, you know, get paid for it. Um, and so they split off and formed their own company and adapted Metro 2033, which was sort of the other big kind of post-apocalyptic uh, story within kind of Eastern European literature in the terms of, of recent kind of sci-fi literature that um, Stalker is based on a roadside picnic by the Strugatsky brothers and then Metro 2033 is Dmitry Bukowski. Um, but there's some really cool ideas in Metro, I think, in particular elements of the way that the people who have survived, which are the people who were who rushed to the, the story is set in Moscow in the metro system because it turns out that the um when the soviets built the moscow metro system they designed it to be able to withstand um an atomic blast and um as a result the idea is that there is a you know the unthinkable happens and uh there is uh nuclear warfare and um the 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 people of moscow are rushing into the metros and the ones who get there are the ones who survive and then they have had to live down there for years and years that the the character that you play as artyom um was basically like a baby who has almost no memories of the surface world when things collapsed um but then there's a whole kind of interesting way in which they have you know had to right there's so much stuff that they have lost over time especially you know that they um like they they you know weren't able to bring a lot of like historical documents and stuff down so a lot of the kind of history has become a real oral tradition instead right the idea that you know it's not something that they have like good records of it's what people remember and tell to the next generation. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff with that. In particular, there's a, a whole sequence that has to do with this kind of um, mythologized version of the Eastern Front of World War II and the way that Artyom is being told this story by this kind of mystic character who is talking about these events that you only kind of eventually realize that the symbolism has specifically to do with um, Soviet, Soviet forces versus uh, Nazi German forces in the Eastern Front combat in World War II. And it's kind of a really interesting sequence. And I really, I really liked that sequence of the book um, and the way that it kind of gets at kind of sort of modern myth-making in some really clever ways. And so I was, I was wondering how I could do something like that with this sort of combination of things, right? Have the, the Twilight 2000 post-apocalyptic Baltic map alongside kind of Germanic and Slavic mythology alongside this sort of like, you know, attempt to understand a sort of mythologized version of history, essentially, and, and all of that together blended up into kind of one thing. Um, and I'm still not sure I would really like to do something with it, but I'm, I'm not sure how to make it happen. And I've got some other some other irons in the fire right now. So I don't necessarily know what to do with all of that. But
but yeah, I would really like to do something with those uh, troll lord codices and all that. Um, anyway, I think that is going to be it for this episode. Um, yeah, it's already going to be almost 50 minutes long, it looks like. So I'm not going to talk about AD&D First Edition Druids. I'm not sure if I want to talk about that next episode, because I think next episode might be a uh, discussion of something inspired by a discussion that um, Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep was talking about. Um, that was a really interesting thing. He was, he was talking about kind of... Um, magic and the role of magic within these fantasy worlds and the kind of combination of magical role with magical rules and and sort of discussing these ideas um, and it was there's some really interesting stuff there and it got me really inspired um and i think i am going to do something with regard to that um so that will probably be the next episode but after that um probably for like the saturday episode um which will be like 3.27 or something then i will probably have some comments on ADD first edition druids and inspiration from history and all of that sort of stuff so yeah that's sort of the idea right now um for anybody who was expecting a human sacrifice episode today, um, sorry that I didn't uh, end up uh, working on that. Um, like I said, it was one of those things that I really, I think there is uh, stuff that is worth saying about human sacrifice, but I sort of felt like I didn't have enough that I wanted to say that I could be really not like like confident about the sort of anthropological research was also part of it too that i feel like if i was going to talk really deeply about the nature of human sacrifice in a number of historical cultures that it would be appropriate to do some you know anthropological research and um you know be able to kind of talk about those cultures in the detail that they deserve essentially and and not uh, misrepresent them and so I, I i will probably end up doing that i've got kind of so many different things that i'm working on right now on different directions so um but that is something that interests me so i will probably end up doing something about it but you know it may be a little while before i kind of have enough material that i feel like i'm ready to sort of present what I've found essentially. So I guess we'll see. But anyway, um, aside from that, um, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I had fun talking. Um, obviously the big discussions were about kind of solo play and about this kind of um, post-apocalyptic feudal mythological game thing that I was talking about. So um, I hope those ideas were interesting to you. Um, certainly they were interesting to me. Um, you can reach me all the usual ways, leave a voice message on Anchor, um, message me on Discord, message me on Twitter, send me an email at pelhamsbaseland at gmail.com. Um, I will also ask that if you are at all interested in hearing more about my solo play stuff, that you check out my new podcast, Pelham's Wasteland Plays Solo. Um, which uh, there's probably a link somewhere on the anchor page to it. Um, and hopefully I'll remember to put that in the description of this particular episode too. Um, but it's, it's basically a place for my solo play stuff. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, it doesn't have any actual solo play episodes uploaded yet. Um, it just has a sort of trailer and a kind of what is this podcast about episode right now. But 
you know, worth checking out, I think, if you like solo play stuff. Um, or at least I hope that it's worth checking out. Um, otherwise, I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pumas Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.